Hello, you're listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for this week, ending Friday the 11th of August 2023. We're on Triple R every weekday morning from 6 to 9am, broadcast live from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on the podcast this week, we are joined in studio by legend dairy actor Hugo Weaving to talk about his new film The Rooster, which is showing as part of Myth. And Fee Wright was back for a book review, reviewing, despite its title, a book that's not a biography by Catherine Lacey, Biography of X. Astronomer Benji Mether takes us through that fireball in the sky, space junk and UFOs. With increasing cases of fans throwing strange objects at musicians on stage, we ask, are adults just crying out for more opportunities to throw stuff? And Michael Harden takes us to Dramana for food interlude. Again, from MIF, Simonia Baldi reviewed Hello Dankness, the multi-layered cinematic remix from punk art filmmakers Soda Jerk. Friday funny bugger Prue Blake wants to whack moles, but with the return of our beloved breakfaster, we start the week celebrating Monday. Triple R. It's a big day it here is. at Breakfasters. She's back. It's Monday. Uh, it's <laughs> I know, sorry, but I was like typed up. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> this is brilliant. Um, yes, but she's back after six months of parental leave. Um, and, yeah, it's so nice to see you behind the desk. Um, I know a lot of the listeners are very excited over mm, the past week farewelling Simon mm-hmm. and announcing your return. We've received a, lo- a lot of really exciting excited and lovely messages. I think one listener said it the best. They wrote goat for a goat. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. First time I've been called that. Yeah, but please feel free to text in at 0466 I'm surprised about that it's the first time given the, what's going on hair-wise on your chin. <laughs> yeah, I have got a goat oh, When you're talking about physical resemblance, <laughs> absolutely. You look good. Thank you. It suits you. It has taken its toll. I um, but to, I guess just to catch you up quickly, Mon, mm. on what's been going on here, Um. I've started boot scooting and a couple of months ago, Daniel contemplated getting into remote control cars. <gasps> so things have been hectic, hectic. really oh busy. sound full uh, on. Daniel thought about doing yeah, something. Yeah. I don't know where we landed on that. We need to circle back. But it's like, what about you? How, how, what have you been up to? And I don't know, on a scale of one to ten, how inappropriate is it to refer to parental leave as a holiday? How was the holiday? <laughs> Such a lovely break. Yeah. Um, I did have a baby in January. I had a little boy. His name is Rudy. Uh, um, and it, it's, it's flown, it's flown by. It's, and it's been, it's been wonderful and a, a total head spin. Um, and I, I bumped into Sarah at the community cup, mm-hmm. Sarah Smith, who sat in this chair for very long. And, and I think I said to her, any, never heard of her. any advice. Yeah, she she <laughs> she's passed it now. No, but I asked her. For, I think I asked her for advice, and she was just like, and like a lot of parents, which I think is probably good. She seemed very reticent to give me any. Like, just do your own thing. You'll figure it out. Don't worry about it. Just get in there. But there was a point of me point over the weekend where I was like, thinking, I really just I want like a. I want a solid plan. I want yep. to know exactly what she did. How did she make it work? But then I kind of appreciated, like, she was just like, you just go in there and you do it. And Well, she resigned is what happened. And so I'm here to announce. Here to announce. She left us. Where's Simon? Here to announce my resignation. <laughs> um, so she did. That filled me with a uh, little confidence, Daniel. But no, it's, look, it was, it was honest, it's honestly just 
Look, someone who Great, doesn't have a child, I will sit down with you and we'll go step by step. <laughs> I know you've got a partner, but forget it. No, I can help you. And how is Rudy? Did he make you breakfast this morning? He did, did he drive you to yeah. the studio? Is that um, what they're doing? No, Rudy woke up woke up at 4.30, which is the time I was going to wake up anyway. So he's we're already in sync. Yeah, um, oh, beautiful. But yeah, it's really fun. I love not having – I mean, I have nieces and nephews. Um, I bang on them, about them all the time. <laughs> um, but before that, I had no real reference to, like, what a kid could do at six months. What are they doing mm. at one? You know, it's like – I know they're born, 18, they get their license. Something like, happens, what happens in, between. in between. I'm not sure. Did you know? Like- I had rarely, I could probably count how many times I'd held a baby before having <laughs> one. Like I've never had, I don't have any nieces and nephews either does my partner. I've, I'm the youngest of all my cousins. I like you went in cold turkey. I've ne- never babysat anyone before. <gasps> what do you mean you never babysat? Just never you wanted to involved little <laughs> girl and so i just was like oh how am i going to do this um and i don't know i haven't seen rudy in weeks i left him <laughs> I, I wound down, rudy the, down the street and he was doing shopping he's like i've got a lot to do so it was, i remember yeah so i was just like but but i'm doing it and he's he's happy and we're happy so ooh. how did you feel about your toys growing up my toys yeah like did you kind of feel like a maternal Oh, I mean, I always hated dolls. Oh, wow. <laughs> it just sounds like the shoe fits, doesn't it? I really, it? You, I don't want this. But no. The interesting thing for anyone else out there no, listening. No, it's refreshing <laughs> to hear. didn't have any impact on <laughs> how much I like being a mother because I think it's the best thing. But, yeah, no, I just hadn't ever, I just was like, how do I, how do, I do this? How do I do baby rearing? <laughs> we saw you in action uh, briefly last week. Amazing, wonderful. And you've got an, a, a great pram as well. Good We're, pram, easy to manoeuvre. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Uh, good. I guess I got a good pram. Everything, the, the benefit of also a lot of your friends having babies before you, mm. we've, we haven't yeah. bought anything. Everything's just get given to us. So we've had been the um, recipient of lots of hand-me-downs. Excellent. Um, and so if it's a good pram... You can thank my friends and then their friends who gave it to them. Well done. You certainly have a bit of a Fort Knox approach from what I can see in the, in the crib. <laughs> there appears to be an excess of CCTV <laughs> and equipment. You know, it is. <laughs> yeah, so for those listening, which is everyone, that's yeah. how you um, consume this medium. <laughs> um, it works. Uh, I joined in on a breakfasters meeting last week and I had to do it from home <laughs> and showed them Rudy in the cop, but he also has a – it's called a baby monitor. Oh, it's yeah, okay, okay, yeah. Um, and he's safe and sound and he's got a little tin cup to rattle on the bars when he's hungry. <laughs> How's Rudy enjoying the chip that you've shoved up his nostril? <laughs> Um, and I'm tracking all his movements and everything. But, no, they can get really intense. You can, I mean, I've, it's a baby monitor and I've got an app and I haven't checked it since I left the house. Oh, good. But you can, like, check their temperature, you know, have a temperature monitor in there in the room and the, all this kind of stuff. And you can go – you can truly go crazy with the amount of data you can consume about a little baby and I'm trying to Trying to keep it. it at a distance. Yeah, like I want to see him – and hear him, that's probably enough. Mm. Whereas at the other end of the scale, there's me who chucked my kid on a whizzy dizzy. What are they called? Are they called whizzy dizzies? Oh, oh, yeah. Anyway, spun around and then I've learned that the, like swimming and eating, like you have to wait 20 minutes because I chucked him in the car and he spewed everywhere. Oh, no. 
and then threw me out of the bus. I'm like, why don't you shut up? <laughs> I keep being quiet. Like he, he, he said that you did it. Well, he didn't know what caused it, but he oh. did. Uh, I mean, I, I fessed up pretty fast and then I thought I got away with it. But uh, tradies got in the car apparently <laughs> a week later and they could. Still smell. Th- there was a residual. Oh, no. Oh, the whizzy dizzy. This is all in my future. Exactly. I'm excited. Yeah. yeah. And the fact Falling that, off things at uh, the park. Yeah, and the fact that Rudy's already getting up at 4.30 in preparation for being a breakfast. So you've, uh, <laughs> I mean, you've given birth to a Nepo baby. Yeah, that's what I want. <laughs> You know, the Nepo babies were big in my, during my parental leave and I thought, what's the best way to get him started? Yeah. Um, so look forward to bringing him in and um, yeah. putting him up to the mic and making lots of goo-goo-ga-ga sounds. Yeah, I assume you'll make us coffee and just help mm. out around the station. So, um, Well, Jess brought her dogs. Yeah, exactly. What's the difference? Exactly. You know, I, I truly, lo- truly love people who talk about their fursons and their fur babies. <laughs> so I'll be bringing in my non-furry babies soon. Melbourne's own. Hugo Weaving is the acclaimed actor of film, theatre and television whose credits to only scratch the surface include The Interview, The Dressmaker, The Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit and Matrix trilogies, Babe, Hearts and Bones, Bodyline, Proof, Priscilla, Patrick Melrose, Waiting for Godot, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, Hacksaw Ridge and Macbeth. And we're out of time. Picking up along the way a swag of actor, SAG, Helpman and other accolades, Hugo's latest film is as a Miles Davis-loving volatile hermit living deep amongst the trees in The Rooster. And to tell us about it, uh, directed by Mark Leonard Winter, the Honorary Officer of the Order of Australia, joins us now. Hugo, welcome back to Breakfasters. Well, that was a lovely interview. Last you spoke with us, you mentioned that you like journeys and you like road movies. We've swung to the other end of the spectrum now. Uh, Can you introduce us to The Rooster from your perspective? Yeah, so The Rooster definitely doesn't take place on the road. It takes place in a forest, primarily a small country town. And there's a the local young cop of the small country town, played by Phoenix Ray, uh, is um, loses someone early on in the film and just sort of goes into a bit of a spiral, and ends up in the woods. And in a normal classical sort of fairy story, you might travel into the woods and meet a witch or <laughs> perhaps meet a wise man. He does meet a man, but the man he meets is not. Well, he's got his own brand of wisdom, I guess. Um, so it's essentially a, it becomes a kind of two-hander about these two two men who are both damaged in their own ways, uh, dealing dealing with with quite in 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 the case of Mitt, who's the hermit in the woods, the character I play, quite deep-seated um, uh, trauma he's dealing with, and uh, the two men sort of help each other to deal with that. And thinking of the interview and waiting for Godot and now the rooster, what are you? get out of two-handers? What, what's meaty about it for you? Um, well, it's, I suppose you develop a real intimacy with the other performer, the other actor. And um, Mark had written this beautiful script. So Mark, Mark Leonard Winter uh, both wrote and directed. This is his first film. It's a pretty astonishing mm-hmm. film, I think. Uh, he wrote this beautiful script. So we had good things to say to each other. Uh, and Phoenix and I hadn't met. We met on Zoom about a couple of weeks before. And read through the, the read through the, the screenplay with uh, with Mark, but we didn't meet until the day before we started working. Luckily, mm. we were sort of working um, kind of sequentially. So our first scene together was the scene where the hermit meets uh, uh, Dan in the forest, 
And we just said, okay, we're just going to have to develop our relationship as the, as the two do. And it was great. Our immediate sort of rapport between the two of us. And it was a very special time working with him. So, yeah, a lot of intimacies, a lot of uh, shared, a lot of humour. Mm. And the, all of that's in the script anyway. It's, I think it's a very funny piece too. It's kind of has a lightness and a, a sweetness to it that, that's, that is quite disarming. And not to get too parochial about precipitation, but Victoria's Fog kind of turns it on, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was. It's it's definitely one of those Australian films. You go, oh, that's not a that's not a big wide red desert landscape. That's a that's a Victorian forest. That's <laughs> a, that's a, a wet, cold, and it was cold. And of course, we playing we played table tennis in the nude. So, for, <laughs> so for is that anyone your who likes, anyone who's into that, come along and see it. You know? What is the? Uh, do you ever get? No, I mean, playing table tennis in the nude. I can't imagine you ever imagine that was on the cards for you. Uh, do you get amused or nervous or is there anything about exposing yourself and being vulnerable that makes you conscious, self-conscious or are you yeah. totally impervious to this at this point? No, I think it's kind of hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> what can you do? Yeah. And that comes through, I think, in the yeah. performance, yeah. definitely, in your character. There's um, also uh, just loneliness. Uh, we were just speaking about loneliness before, and I'm wondering in terms of what cinema does for loneliness and w- your approach to being alone and the characters as well, exploring the idea of loneliness. Do, do you think the ideas of loneliness are settled or are they shifting in 2023? Or? Oh, yeah, well, shifting for sure, aren't they? I mean, I think... I think, I think We've gone through a profound, profound change in our lives all around the world for, for a lot of different reasons. Um, but obviously COVID has isolated us all uh, and some of us much in more dangerous ways than others. And there's, there's a sort of philosophical part of it that I, I actually thought was kind of terrific. We all had to stop and, and go, well, what is important in life? What's, you know, uh, do I really need to rush around and, and be social all the time, <laughs> every day? But then there's the other side of it, which is, well, yeah, I do quite like seeing friends and I, I do need to see my family and we do need to connect. And um, uh, so, yeah, I think, I think we're dealing with, with all of that as a society and, and our devices um, bring us more and more into a sort of virtual um, marketplace, if you like, or a virtual uh, society. And that doesn't really replace real society. Yeah. Uh, and that, that's a real issue for all of us, I think. So I've, I've noticed a number of my friends who are just increasingly feel, they feel they're being social, but they're, being not, they're being, not being social at all. Well, they are, but online. And uh, I think there are damages that are being wrought on all of us as a society. Mm. So, so loneliness is a big issue because it can exist despite how we feel about mm. We think we're in society, but maybe we're not. Maybe mm. we're intensely lonely. Is, I just wanted to ask about in terms of international, because you, were, you had such international success with these big global productions and, the, you know, The Matrix and all these trilogies. And yeah. Did loneliness ever come to you when you were a bit of a nomadic actor? Yeah, I think when you're travelling and you're away from family, you can often very busy working so but there there are there are there are there are loneliness there are there are there are times when you are you feel you feel solitary which is fine but there are other times when you feel lonely and 
it's because you're not connecting with people you love, I think. Mm. And so, um, but often traveling like that, I'm just too busy to really mm. think about it. I think that's uh, so, so. generally not. I don't, I don't, I think I have a pretty good balance between being on my own. I like to be on my own, and I know that's different. Being on your own is different from being lonely, but I have a fairly good balance between uh, a lonesome kind of guy and mm. a, a you know, party loving guy. <laughs> <laughs> but the film also, as well, I, uh, yeah, addresses loneliness, but also, I guess, like the mental health issues mm. and the dark places that we can go in our mind and how that's maybe interconnected or a part of, yeah, the experience with masculinity in mm. this country was. How important was that for you in this film? And yeah, being, I think yeah. that's uh, that's really what ultimately what the film is about. And mm. you've got t- two men who, for various for different reasons, have have spiralled into the heart of the woods, mm. and they've found each come across each other, stumbled across each other. Dan literally stumbles across um, the hermit, and he lives on his own. He's obviously been there for some time. He's in a small hut in the woods. And he's running a kind of interior monologue yeah. uh, the whole time. Uh, Mitt, he, that's that's his name. We don't really know why until the end, but he's running this interior monologue. And he's. We find out that there's been a major trauma in his life as a child, as a young boy, and then there's been kind of compounding traumas later on with his with his wife and child. And so he's sort of retreated from the world and he's trying to, I think, trying to work out, still trying to nut out how to make his life better and how to how to make it, his life work. But he's disappeared into his own head. So he's he's not particularly mentally well, but he's got a he's got a he's got an independence and he's got an he's got a capability, but he's but he's also outside um He's deluded in some other ways, so it, it makes for a fascinating character. And and Dan, the cop, Phoenix's character, helps to illuminate certain things in his makeup, and vice versa. I think Dan learns. To, <laughs> there's a wonderful line towards the end. Dan says, "Well, it's good to have met you because I, I, I realise uh, that actually my life's not as bad <laughs> as yours." So, you know. I mean, your com- your character traverses, I suppose, comedy and menace, and mm. you have some iconic menacing roles. What is your approach to the charm within menace? Ooh. <laughs> Um, I suppose I would I would I would be conscious of the charm within menace in a certain role. Uh, so if you're playing a, a classical baddie, if you like, uh, I think one of the key things playing playing a, a someone like Agent Smith, you go well. You've got to the audience have to enjoy your performance, otherwise it's a failure, right? Mm. Actually, so so there's an enjoyment that's necessary. There's a joie de vivre that needs to be some where at the heart of the character. With someone like Mitt, I don't think he's got... Well, he's got a certain, uh, a certain sense of humour. Yeah, it's pretty wacky, actually. But I suppose I was less conscious of it from an, from an, from an actor's point of view. I was more trying to, trying to get into uh, Mitt's um, interior monologue, which, which occasionally would travel to, to quite humorous places. Uh, for, for me, it was just trying to... Trying to, yeah, trying to immerse myself in his particular uh, train of thought, which is uh, 
was great fun. Mm. It was really fun. Yeah, what, it looks it. What is it about Australian films in particular and ones like this which combine very dark themes with humour and that you think is unique to cinema in this country? Um, I think we do just. I think we do just that. Um, combine, combine. I think one of the best. Uh, if there's a, if there's, yeah, one of one of the best um, genres, if you like, that we that we look at in film and TV is like that classic cops and robbers set up, and I think it's sort of embedded in our history. Mm. The convict colony, you've got the prisoners and the and the you know the the, the people who are who are looking after them, the jailers. And that sense uh, has sort of run through our history and our uh, the stories we tell about ourselves. So I think we're quite good at that. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's a there's a humour in, in the prison. There's a humour in in the convict setup because well, hey, you're in chains or you're so you've got to find life and you've got to find warmth and you've got to find you've got to find a sense that you're better than your jailer. <laughs> I think so. So I think I think that's part of the humour, and it's also I'm sure there's links back to 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 Ireland particularly. We have lots of uh, strong Irish connections, I think, in this country and in our culture. Mm. That sense of the oppressed, the underdog. Uh, we're down at the other end of the world. We're, we're not in the, the you know apparently the centre of things, which is apparently in Europe. Mm-hmm. We're down here, so you develop a sense of isolation, a sense of who you are as a as a as an isolated um, entity. Mm-hmm. And the rooster being a big part of myth, you must be having the time of your life, uh, reveling in an international film festival. Uh, uh, yes, I am actually, and uh, and I I love myth, and I and it's a really thrilling festival, and it's great to come down here. I realise with the cinema tech here as well how the sense of film culture is really alive here it's lovely to talk to you guys it's actually lovely to the fact that you've seen the film that you know that and you want to talk about it that's actually fantastic so uh it's a real pleasure for me i'm a complete film nerd i love film i always have so i'm a patron of the sydney film festival i love going to that and i'm on the board of the adelaide film festival and i love going to that (laughs) i love coming down here so it's an absolute pleasure for me to see great films oh well wonderful to have you uh we're talking about the rooster it's written and directed by mark leonard winter and it's screening as a part of MIF in town and across the state Uh, head to MIF.com.au for more information and tickets hugo weaving weaving what a great pleasure to have you in studio absolute pleasure thank you Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. Fee Wright's here to tell us about all the weird and wonderful things going on in literature, although that might be overselling it. Hi, Fee. <laughs> I can talk about one specific <laughs> weird and wonderful thing. Mm. <laughs> um, I'm here today to talk about the biography of X uh, by Catherine Lacey. It's out now via Alan and Unwin. And um, I have to say, this is an incredibly well-researched text. It's filled with photographs of people and images of books and art and places. This author interviews many people, annotating and footnoting the pages as she goes. She refers to old articles and quotes from things like The New Yorker, PBS, WNYC, Um, All sorts of illustrious publications and names are mentioned while traversing the life of the multidisciplinary artist X. The problem, though, is that it's all fiction and none of it is real. Mm. Goodness gracious. Well, well, actually, that's that's not true because some of it is real. 
So some names are real from my brief go- like I mean I knew that David Bowie and Tom Waits were real people. <laughs> Didn't need to Google them. Um, but a number of other well-known artists are included um, and some not well-known artists. I There's um, chapters dedicated to this folk artist who disappeared, uh, Connie Conway. Connie, no, Connie Converse, um, who I Googled thinking she was a fake name and she mm-hmm. was actually a real person that disappeared in like the mid-70s. Um, and... This book has kind of done my head in a bit. Already it's done my head in. Yeah, like you're flicking through it now and it just it absolutely looks exactly like a standard biography. There are footnotes, endnotes, um, all sorts of things. Um, if you turn to the very front, Daniel, you'll notice that the publication date, which confused me at first, an ISBN page, mm. is uh, set to 2005, <laughs> yeah. which is the date of the fake biography of X was published. Oh, this is so yeah, multi-layered. Why, why yep. are they trying to confuse I didn't so know. Much? I thought that was inviable. I didn't know you could monkey around with that page. Well, I, there isn't. I think there's another one at the end perhaps. Oh, right. So I think they've just, um, yeah, they're playing around with it a cool. bit. Um, and at the start I was interested because I felt like I was getting a, this perspective on the motivation that people have to create and write a biographical project so the author um her wife has died in the 90s she's married to x and then this other random dude decides to write a biography of x it is unauthorized um and so he publishes a number of things that are incorrect her birthplace age things like that and so this author decides to go out and research x's life with a sounding detail to correct it and so you get the inner monologue of the author reflecting on her wife who has passed away. But, yes. yes. But is but is this all fiction? Yes. So the author, so Catherine Lacey's wife. It's not Catherine Lacey though. Uh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it is a fake, a fake. It's all person. fake. It's all fake. Do we know who's actually written it? Um, or I, is that a spoiler? It's a little bit of a spoiler because okay. it comes about slowly who it is. And um, so last book I came on to review was Wifedom by Anna Funder, which was another biography. And Anna Funder included in the biography her own thoughts as to why she was driven to write this. And so I was really interested because this book also really delves into that. Um, and then, you know, I'd have these moments where like – I was uh, I was fully in. Yes, this is fictional. Yes, this is a fake biography. But then I would have these moments at the start where I'd be like, "Oh, she referred to X as her wife, but she died in the '90s." And it's very clear that gender-wise, this is a woman writing the book. And then I thought maybe that's just how they referred to each other. They said in America, you know, that's just maybe they had a civil union. I was just kind of like, you know, whatever. But then the book got even weirder. Um, are you all like, this is just, it's so strange, but it's so fascinating. So this is a fake biography about a fake artist, but it also creates an alternative narrative in history for the United States. (laughs) So in 1945, I think, I think this is, I believe a socialist woman is potentially elected and the Southern states known in the book as the Southern Territory secede the union (laughs) <laughs> and America divides into the southern, northern, and western territories. 
So Western seems the most like libertarian. Southern is extremely religious and white right wing. And the North becomes incredibly progressive. Um, in the North, gay marriage is legal from like the 1950s. There's a universal basic income, free education, all these sorts of things. And it also analyzes the sort of um, like a lefty utopia that maybe things wouldn't be as perfect as they would be if all of those things mm-hmm. existed from that time. And then um, a wall goes up, not between America and Mexico, but between the southern and northern territories to prevent women from running over the border from the south to the north. So the south has all of these – It you know, just as the way uh, universal basic income is quite, um, you know, uh, forward-thinking – the southern states have their kind of equivalency, which is, um, you know, birth control is illegal, women stop having education over the age of 12, um, all babies born need to have, like, religious-related names, um, like really biblically connected names, things like that. So the implication here is that together the north and the south kind of balance each other out a bit, um, but that is a deeper political analysis that, I will leave to other more educated people than me. Mm -hmm. But the thing is that's so fascinating is that X escapes the South um, after joining a terrorist organization slash freedom fighter group that blows up a gun factory in the 60s. And this all blows my mind because I just quoted that like a historical event. Mm-hmm. Um, who was uh, the the um, the Sandinistas? You know, it's very like, is it the Sandinistas that um, that did that? They they um, kidnapped that um, that girl whose dad owned all of the newspapers. Oh, oh yes, yes, yes. Um, Stockholm syndrome girl. Anyway, know. you know what I'm talking yeah. about. The listeners know. If someone's texting in furiously exactly. as we as we speak, um, yes. Anyway, that that incident sounds exactly like this case of this this um, explosion, and. I have read the quotes from the newspapers at the time of this event. I've seen photographs that got smuggled out through the border when all talk of insurrection was like being quashed by the South, but none of it happened. None of it exists. And that is all so fascinating to me that Lacey has created the perfect example of the form of a biography, but it is all fiction. Mm. And that is just wild. Mm. Patty Hurst, I think. Yes, Patty, Hurst. Patty Hurst. So, yeah. So, uh, thank you for the text. Now, yeah, we, you're available for trivia nights. Uh, <laughs> if you're reading an Onion article or maybe you're watching a mockumentary, there's a purpose. It feels like an obvious purpose to creating a fictional world that plays as real, and that is usually humour and comedy. Mm. And so, this what what. What explains, do you think, not that it needs an explanation because it's art, but what explains such an ambitious creative writing exercise? I I feel like it's an analysis of America in certain, certain respects. But then additionally, I think um, it actually, it weirdly reminded me a lot of Dave Eggers um, when he published like his first couple of books really mucked around with form in this really fun way. Um, like heartbreaking work of staggering genius is actually very similar. And he blurred the lines between fiction and biography a bit in that, like he, um, by his own 
uh, omission says, you know, that's not really how it happened. Um, but then he would do things like, I can remember there was one scene in, in his second novel where someone's on a boat and they talk about going up in the air on a wave and then there's like three blank pages and then it felt like ages before we landed and so you, you get that sense of that time of being midair. Um, and I think it's honestly to experiment with the form and the assumptions that we have about what makes a biography because it also reminded me of um, during lockdown I reviewed the, I've forgotten the name of the author now, but the Pulitzer Prize winning Susan Sontag biography which is about 800 pages and that biography was so well researched and well documented um but Susan Sontag still felt elusive I felt like here this was an analysis of relationships you know what do we know about the people we're married to especially when we choose to tie ourselves to someone who is um an elusive artist that decides to um go by fake names repeatedly lives in costume at times that's why it's known as they're known as X because they've had so many fake identities they refuse to commit to anything and their whole life is is essentially art and all the art actually like there's quotes from the novels that X has written and stuff and they're all good like that's the other thing as well like the paintings are good like all of the stuff in it is quality um I've been really holding off on researching Catherine Lacey's research because Mm -hmm. I don't want to know until after the review because I didn't want it to be influenced I just wanted to Mm -hmm. look at the book Mm -hmm. um but I think that I'm just really excited by anyone that is prepared to take such a risk because it could have, like, it could have been absolute trash. Like, there's this would either be brilliant or terrible. Mm. It can't be like, eh. Yeah. You know, because it's just so and then risky. A risk, but it seems like such a grind to put together. Yeah. yeah, yeah like, like, double like, the work. <laughs> double, like, triple, quadruple. Like, the the footnotes alone. Fact-checking yourself on yes. things that aren't facts. Yes. Yeah. yeah, because it's... every article from the past has a title. So oh. she's quoting something. So she's quoting something that someone has said either about X or X directly and then has, you know, article um album of the week uh by the new york times published date august 9th 1984 you know like Mm. every single footnote has that level of detail and it's so it's just really interesting study in the things that we take for granted in form and i feel Mm. like that's probably Um, Catherine Lacey must be, and I say this as a huge compliment because I really did enjoy this book, a bit unhinged to go (laughs) to that level of, of absolute next. I can't, I can't even fathom doing it. Yeah. Yeah. It is incredible. If you, obviously there's a lot of, um, obvious points that show Mm. that it's fiction, like the U S being divided and Mm. all this kind of thing. But could you feasibly pick it up, read yes. it, and it just reads like a biography? Yes, it absolutely yeah. does. Something fantastical. Yeah, like if you had no idea of the history of the United States, yeah. you could absolutely read it like it was a truthful book or yeah. not, like not, not fiction. Are the not, quotes on the yeah. back real? Well, that's about Catherine Lacey. And it's really interesting because the last book <laughs> I read, by her, read mm. by her was this book, Nobody Is Ever Missing, which I was pretty ambivalent about and I didn't actually put it together that it was her until after I finished the book I was like that that sounds familiar and then I realized I'd read it 
about, oh, I want to say like eight years ago. And I was like, man, I did not, I was really indifferent to that book. How have you gone from a really standard form to this? Mm. Like, where has this come from? Is this like a lockdown project? You know, like you've just, I can't, I can't <laughs> imagine it. And, um, and because of that, I just, I'm just so fascinated in how, like, it's just incredible and how it stands in isolation. All right. It's the biography of X, Catherine Lacey, at via who? Alan and Onwin. All right, Fee, thanks for the mind bender. Yeah, you're welcome. Triple R. Sonic booms, fireballs, space junk, congressional hearings into UFOs. It appears to all be happening in the sky and to help explain the unusual goings-on in our atmosphere. Who better to speak to than PhD student in astronomy at the University of Melbourne, Benji Mether. Welcome to Breakfasters. Thanks so much for having me. Now, what happened on Monday night in the Melbourne sky? Well, what happened was some people reported seeing a huge fireball um, and it lit up the sky. It was really beautiful. I wasn't awake for it because we didn't know it was coming. (laughs) Um, But apparently the cooler thing for me is that people could actually hear it. Um, They heard what sounded like a sonic boom. Um, Some people described it as the sound of like a car exploding. Don't know why a car specifically. But um, yeah, what happened was that there was this huge piece of space debris that fell um, towards Earth um, and it kind of like fell over Victoria and it left this beautiful fireball and you could see it breaking up as well as it kind of like passed over the night sky about midnight. What are the conditions of a sonic boom? Um, It has to be breaking the speed of sound um, and then it's sort of like it's sort of like a ripping in the atmosphere that kind of like spreads out as sound waves for us to hear. And does a sonic boom sound the same no matter where you are? Um, I don't know about that. I think it's just like, it would be like anything. It's just kind of like the further away you go, the quieter it is. Yeah. And can you see from, if you look up, can you tell by its trajectory where something like that might land or where it's going? Where it might land. So this is interesting. There's sort of a debate right now. A lot of people don't know if it did land or if it all burned up or not. But people think that if it did land, it probably landed in the ocean. So yeah, you can tell from looking at where something's going, where it's supposed to land, but... Whether or not it all burned out or if it crashed down, we just don't know. And why was this one so big? Like, why did it appear like this big, giant shooting star in the sky? Right. So the reason for that is because people reckon that this was a stage of a rocket that was launched by Russia, um, a Soyuz 2 rocket. Um, So rockets come in stages, basically because if you have to lift something into space, you have to carry all of your fuel with you. And once you've emptied a fuel tank, it just makes more sense to just drop that tank off. Once that tank's dropped off, there's sort of like two things that can happen. It can either stay in space, which a lot of them do. There's still rocket parts in space from the 1970s just orbiting around us right now. Or it can crash right down like this one did. And so that's what happened with this one. Um, the reason it was so bright was just because it, it weighs a lot. Like this is a several ton object that is burning up in the atmosphere. Um, most meteorites that you see will be like much, much less than that, a couple of kilograms maybe. And is that why a car would have been invoked? Because it's a contained metal cylinder or anything like that, do you think? Say that again? The car, people said it sounded like an exploding <laughs> car. Yeah, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and what about the what was going on in WA? We had space junk on a beach in Western Australia. Yeah, that one was really interesting as well. People saw this mysterious object like washed up on the shores. Um I'm still not sure what the uh, the jury found out about that one, but there is a lot of stuff in space that's just kind of like still orbiting around at the moment. Um, for some people, this is a concern as well. So, for example, if you're like traveling through space, if you're on orbit, you're going at about 25,000 kilometers an hour. 
And if you meet something else going in the opposite direction at 25,000 kilometers an hour, even something as small as like a fleck of paint can do a lot of damage to a spacecraft. Mm. So there's a lot of concern about space debris that's kind of like in space. And that's sort of like even more concerning than the stuff that sort of like falls down to Earth as well. And is there a way of telling whether something from a distance is man-made or it's kind of naturally occurring out there? There's some ways that people think of sort of doing it, but that's sort of like a hard challenge. So Mm -hmm. at the moment, there's... The US is one of the best um, organizations in the world for kind of like tracking space debris and sort of like figuring out how much is it, where is it, where is it going. But sort of like classifying this space debris is sort of like a more challenging problem sometimes. Like whether figuring out if something is like a piece of a meteor or like asteroid little chunks um, or if it's man-made. You can maybe do it. Um, There's some ideas of like maybe based on like the colors or reflectiveness, you can figure out what it's made of, but it's not easy to do. Okay. Are we enamored by this moment and in the future space junk will be so regular we won't think about it as much? Um, Hope not. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I hope that like we can – there's actually efforts at the moment to kind of like – work on cleaning up space a bit and like figuring out ways to like actually remove this debris. How? Uh, so there's lots of kind of like technologies that are being proposed. Everything from sort of like harpoons that can like grab onto this stuff and mm. like crash tackle it back into earth. Tentacles. Some people are talking about like shooting things down with lasers to kind of like knock them off their trajectory so they fall back to earth and burn up. Did you just say tentacles? Yes. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, we have to backtrack so to that casually. a bit. So uh, tentacles. Tentacles, yeah. Um, it's awesome. Like these People are designing all these spacecrafts with kind of like things that can sort of like, once you get up to one of these large rocket stages, you want to catch them basically before they break up and produce more space debris because that would be really problematic. Um, So if you can find one of these two-ton rocket pieces before it crashes into anything else, basically you get this little kind of spacecraft to wrap itself around it and then sort of like steer it into the Earth where it can burn up um, in the atmosphere the same as that Russian rocket did. Can something cut through the atmosphere does it depend on how big it is, if it makes it to land or water, or does it matter how fast it's going? What are the permutations and specifics involved? Um, Specifically, so generally, I think the atmosphere is pretty hard to get through without burning up completely, Um, which was a challenge for, like, the space sort of, like, you know, um, like, astronaut community as well, is sort of, like, being able to get something back to Earth without burning up completely is pretty difficult. To do that, they engineered some pretty sophisticated, like, heat shields and technology like that to kind of, like, absorb that sort of, like, impact of the atmosphere without burning up completely. Um, but if you're not something like that, it's sort of, like, the most important thing that matters is size. Um, so the meteorites that sort of, like, fall to Earth have to be big ones. Anything that's too small just burns up completely when it's re-entering. Mm. Is there a chance, just to deviate a little, mm. that when people talk about seeing UFOs, it's space junk? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, people, there's all sorts of things in the sky that are like unusual from like sunspots and like, you know, things that don't look quite right. And, you know, also like a lot of the UFO sightings that people rec- report are often like near places where they're developing new um, aircraft. Mm-hmm. So that's possibly what some of it is. Um, yeah, no, the night sky is a very confusing place and there's a lot of things that might look like UFOs that might actually be explained mm. some other way. What did you make of the congressional hearings recently into UFOs? So that was sort of interesting. I think it's fun that it's just one guy that's sort of talking. <laughs> and the way that he's sort of talking as well is like, he's not like I was on the uh, FBI's channel to like see these UFOs. It's like a bunch of my mates told me about this um, UFO <laughs> program that they were working on. 
I feel like they might have been having him on. I feel like <laughs> they might have been saying, we get to work with UFOs, and he just kind of, like, believed them. It's kind of, like, the most likely theory for me. And what's your attitude to space travel? Is it uh, – what are you looking towards? And is your expertise, you know, relevant to the actual f- physics and mechanics of getting through space? Yeah, so there's sorts of, like, a couple of projects that I'm working on with that. One of them is sort of, like um, – about sort of like being able to sort of like characterize this space debris and answer those questions that you said about whether it is man-made or if it's um, natural, if it's like a functional or non-functional satellite as well. Um, being able to monitor that from space is something that I'm interested in. Um, so being able to send up space uh, satellites that can kind of like look at other satellites and figure out are they operational, where are they going. Um, mm-hmm. As well as that, it's sort of like I do a bit of work um, using um, space telescopes such as the James Webb, which is awesome. Um, So I'm kind of like more of the science side of things rather than like building things to sort of like go into space side of things. Mm. What is a next generation space mission? Well, there's a lot that's sort of like on the horizons. Um, NASA has obviously announced the, um, the Artemis mission, which is going back to the moon. Um, and sort of like trying to do that as sort of like a pathfinder to Mars, which is pretty exciting. Um, there's lots of really cool things happening on Earth as well. So in uh, Chile, they are building something called the Extremely Large Telescope. <laughs> it's the ELT. It's the sequel to the Very Large Telescope, the VLT. <laughs> the main difference is that this one's bigger. Um, but there's other kind of like, there's a lot of things that are sort of going on right now. Um, and but what's your, is James Webb by Miles your favourite telescope? Um, it is. Okay. <laughs> Why? It's just, um, there's, it's seeing so much that we've never seen before. Um, it's specifically been designed to be able to see the universe as it was sort of like 10 billion light years away. And the universe is only 14 billion years old. So being able to see something 10 billion light years away, you're seeing the universe as it was 10 billion years in the past. Yeah. And the universe looked pretty different back then. Mm. Apologies for my ignorance. It, this is quite new as well, isn't it? The yeah. So this yep. only launched um, Christmas 2021. Okay. So it's fresh off the boat um, and it's massive. Mm. And what's the name of your, what's your PhD? Um, the name of my PhD? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm looking at uh, something called geostatistics of galaxies. Mainly what I'm looking at is sort of like, how the, the elements that are formed in stars spread out inside a galaxy and are kind of like mixed into their galactic environment. Wow. All right. Well, Benjamin Mether, you're on Instagram and we'll bring you back in next time uh, the UFOs land or whatever. <laughs> oh, awesome. <laughs> Thanks, Benji. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. There's a long history of people throwing objects up on stage at musicians in concerts, but recently I feel like it's really been escalating. It's been in a new in the news a lot. People are just throwing all kinds of objects up on stage, like skittles, phones. Someone put their loved ones' ashes yeah. up on stage, and most recently, last week, there was a controversy. Someone threw a drink on rapper Cardi B which resulted in her throwing her microphone back at them. <laughs> yeah. And it resulted in them pressing charges against her. Oh, okay. Party's yeah. over. Yeah. Party's over. Like Adele has, was on stage telling people to F and stop mm. at her Las Vegas residency. Things have gone up mm. a notch. And while I think, yes, there's like an element of fandom here, you know, people just do anything to kind of get a reaction from these people they admire, I also personally think that maybe there's just like a lack of opportunities for adults to just kind of throw things. 
Oh, okay. Yeah, like I think as a form of expression, you know, outside of ball sports, it's not really appropriate to throw things, is it? Especially at other people. I Googled it. When is it appropriate to throw things things at each other? We're not poison ball or whatever. Yeah, there's obvious ball sports, but when are adults getting together to play poison ball? But you're absolutely right. (laughs) They could. We could organise that. A community match. But it does seem to feel like the community are crying out for something. Mm. Like the Spanish have got it. Um, oh, the yeah, exactly. Mm. They've got a whole festival. And I was looking into that. That started out just from a brawl. Mm. Did at, it? Yeah. Mm. At a festival, something happened. It was a music festival, performers. Someone's like head costume head fell off. A brawl started. There was a market stall and they started throwing produce at each other. Mm. And then they went back a year later and did a planned kind of now you can tie it into your Kentucky tour. Exactly. <laughs> Book it in. Have either of you ever done it? Uh, tomorrow. Like, yeah. No, 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 I have not. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. The clothes are of such a finite resource. I wouldn't want to get them dirty oh, intentionally. You're traveling. Yeah. Traveling. Yeah. <laughs> Save those coins up. Do one washing instead of washing a month. I do like the idea, though, if, if Spain has that going on, maybe Melbourne could have a. Because we were talking about brandy the other week. What if we had a like just a citywide brandy ongoing competition so you never knew when you would be branded and then have to throw? Wait, what is brandy? Oh, um, like poison ball. Well, brandy is the schoolyard game where mm. you have a tennis ball and if you're being cruel, you can be saturated so it's more forceful. And I, I'll brand you like a oh, like a ca- like cattle, a ca- like cattle <laughs> yeah. with my with the my with the ball yeah with my earnest pith, and, and then you're oh, it. Maybe you're okay. called to brandy like jury duty. You just get a letter in the mail Go being like, "You're up. Take the week off work. You're going to be at Amy Park. There's no That's or Marvel it. Stadium. There's no live music this week." And it's like a throwback to the gladiators, but well, yeah. far yeah. less. But it would be an ongoing game. Like someone right now, let's say Melbourne had brandy because to get our throwing energy out, mm. someone would have the ball mm. and they would wake up and they get, it would be their responsibility to brand someone else. And you can't rebrand. <laughs> oh, okay. It has to be someone new. Yeah, so someone could burst in the shoe on Brandis. Any moment. <laughs> Is the branding a bruise from the ball? Kind of. Yeah, well, that that's where it gets its name. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. okay. And it, yeah, branding. I like it. I think so. And a, a mass like game for adults. Also, throwing food seems to be a big thing as well. There's a lot, not just food, there's throwing of in India, they throw like cow poo at each other at one festival. Mm. More, a bit more enjoyable, a bit more pleasant. Spain, they've got a, a wine throwing festival, they've got a few. Um, and then there's one in northern Italy. They throw oranges at each other, which That's I feel heavy. Yeah, that Ouch. really struck me. That's organised like a game, maybe quite similar mm. to brandy. So they're divided into teams, and they throw oranges at each other. Oranges mm. are deceptively dense, aren't they? Yeah. Have you ever played catch with an orange? Probably not. Not as in like literally just throwing the ball back and yeah, forth. Yeah, throw, throw it around. Recommend. Highly, it is the perfect weight. <laughs> I'm not even joking. It is so relaxing. Oh. 
You get an orange out today and you just throw it back and forth. Get a bit of distance. When that orange hits your hand, Mm. you really feel the weight and you feel the satisfaction. You feel a sense of gratification for catching the orange. Mm. If you're feeling particularly alert and you get another one going, get two going. Do it inside. training. Yeah, do it inside if you feel like a thrill. Then there's the risk of breaking something, a window. You don't necessarily need to be throwing things at people Mm. to get a rush from Mm -hmm. playing or throwing something. Just stand near a delicate object and throw some fruit around. Yeah. Call a friend and play orange. Honestly, (laughs) you won't regret it. This is a, okay. Well, it's a call to arms. Is it, it is a call to arms. So yeah, I think we've got some great options here. I mean, another one is of um, the potentially before the performances. Maybe people there could be some kind of stand set up mm. where you could throw things, kind of like at a fair, like mm. what they do with clowns or something. But, but maybe there's like cutouts of the artists. Markup Day is doing a lot of heavy lifting culturally for Australia, mm, yeah. I suppose. We will shoehorn all of our yeah. egg throwing and mm. toilet paper tossing into one day. Into one day, it just doesn't seem like it's enough in this day and age. With what I'm reading, what I'm reading between the lines of what's going on, mm. it seems like people need more. And and why why the um, why are people so drawn to throwing things at musicians though? Well, yeah, I mean they love them. I Is guess. it because they're on stage, like? People aren't going. You can't throw things at. There's not many other opportunities to see people on a stage on an elevated platform. Yeah, it's the euphoria, isn't it? Are they yeah. having a good time? Is that the, what's happening? People are overwhelmed, or are they? Is it aggro? No, I think it's. I mean, that's the thing. If it happened in another public forum, like a press conference, it would be aggro. Mm, because like, when it used to be. And I'll use the phrase because it's what Tom Jones would have said. Mm. Panties. Yeah. <laughs> All the panties on stage. They were so sort of non-aerodynamic. They would us gather, you know, they weren't yeah. fired from a panty cannon. No. no. They're just... It's like embarrassing kind of like trying to get, put your weight behind some, I, I can't say panties, underwear. They're all. <laughs> I said it anyway. They're, but... all, they're all out of panty cannon. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I think it's as well it's the... Yeah, there's something very. I guess obviously they symbolised how sexy people thought Tom Jones was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But they're very. Un- I imagine I've never thrown them around. Something very unsatisfying to throw. Yeah, uh, they that's exactly right. They're not the an stage. orange. That's for sure. Definitely not an orange. Now that mm. you can get some distance with. Okay. But I genuinely feel like if we had a baseball culture, because we do, we play kick to kick. But I just find catch. <gasps> Great. Is just the best. Oh. It is profoundly therapeutic, mm. and I doubt maybe that's why. I mean, I don't recall. I mean, yeah, there of course they don't have soccer riots in the US because because mm. football's not big, but you know, I feel like maybe their cultural inclination towards playing catch is the release valve that they have. And mm. you're right, we need one. We need it. Well, oranges, orange day, yeah, <laughs> and have there. a drink afterwards. <laughs> Juice it up. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. I'm hungry. I want something to eat. Something with a crunch and very sweet. 
Food critic Michael Hart has taken in some freeway art and is back in the studio to report his findings. Morning, Michael. Good morning. Yes, yeah, it was mainly mainly there for the art. <laughs> <laughs> Where did you go? Um, well, I was hanging around on the Mornington Peninsula last week and uh, spent a bit of time in Dramana. And Dramana's always sort of like it's been intriguing me for a while mainly because of the unlikely source of the IGA supermarket that's in Dramana that I would say is possibly the best supermarket in Victoria. Oh. Wow. Um, oh, it is really quite amazing. It's quite it's huge and um, and they have like amazing like you know their their meat section alone they've got a um, meat aging room like a glass walled meat aging room in, that includes a Himalayan salt wall. What? So it's sort of like so that it dries that that takes the moisture and everything there. So there and then they're like all of all of the um, the other meat there. The they've got like you know amazing cooked meat and everything. You can buy whole porchettas. You can buy you know roast chickens and like you know others. But it's like fantastic quality. They've got amazing bread. Um, that like all the small bakeries from all over the peninsula and a little bit wider, so anything that you you want is going to be there. Really good gluten free section, you know, blah blah blah. And I know um, someone who lives north of the Yarra who gets special deliveries of flatbread from the yes. Dramano IGA. Yeah, yeah, it's really quite amazing. <laughs> They're, you know, kind of even like on their cheese section is incredible. So you know, both imported and local cheese and that sort of stuff. They've got great, you know, whole aisles dedicated just to Italian. Food, that sort of stuff. Are so. you giving away a local secret or is, am I just out of the loop? Um, probably out of the loop. Yeah. Embarrassing. I'm yeah, yeah. But, but, but <laughs> when it first opened, it was really amazing because you'd go there to go shopping and people were actually going in there and sort of just wandering around having a look. Mm. It was like a tourist attraction. And it's so. the OGIGA? Yeah, mm. but they did. They, they, they um, expanded it. So it is. It's quite a large It's quite a large facility. So it's sort of – I was like, so – what the hell is going on that Dramana has this amazing supermarket? So obviously start exploring around. And the other thing that Dramana has is a an industrial estate, which doesn't sound all that exciting, but it has recently been rebranded as Dramana Habitat. And um, it is full of really... It's among the sort of like, you know, rock place and the roofing specialist they've got like a, there's a whole bunch of food people as well like a really really quite remarkable group of kind of good quality stuff so um including um there's a place called jimmy rums which is a distillery and a like so it's a boutique rum distillery that are doing really amazing stuff so they're doing you know a whole whole different range of rum starting with like they can't because of australian laws they can't call it rum until it's been in a barrel for two years so they have to call it white cane spirit but it's like a <laughs> it's like a similarity to sort of like you like a Bacardi so really good for like a clean white rum that's good for cocktails and you know that that kind of stuff but they also have a bunch of rum like you know a lot of rum in oak casks there that are they're aging why is a rum distillery so rare in Victoria I think because we don't really grow sugar down here and it's sort of like I think that's probably but but I don't know I think gin the gin like you know we've got this explosion of gin distilleries I think they're a lot easier to sort of set up and get going really quickly whereas rum and also rum is still kind of like back at the pack a little bit in terms of um, popularity Mm -hmm. like people like rum and but 
drinking some of the Jimmy Rum ones, particularly the, the older ones, that's, it's very delicious. It's kind of like an, and very sipping, like you can sip it like a good whiskey and that sort yeah. of stuff. So. And charming staff and that make you... Yeah, it's, they're, they're really... And really down to earth, like very nice people that run that. You can also go there, like a lot of these places on this in this industrial estate, they've got a lot of room to spread out. So a lot of them have sort of beer gardens and, you know, kind of, you know, Jimmy Rum you can go and get, you can go and have a tasting... Um, session, you know, it's sort of a little bit of a masterclass on it and that sort of stuff. And then also sit down and have, you know, a platter at something and, and uh, you know, a paddle of different rums so you can do a bit of a rum flight, that sort mm. of stuff. There's also on the same estate, there's Bass and Flinders Distillery, which has been established for quite some time, which is gin and brandy. Um, so hence the new um, uh, thing that they're doing down there, which is um, bikes that you can hire to ride between all these different places. So it's sort of probably like, you know, get an Uber yes. and then get your tandem bike and then you can wobble your way around. I love so. that they're doing brandy as well because I love brandy. Yeah. But I find I struggle to get it out. I love a brandy and dry, but sometimes I'll go to the bar and they'll be like, oh, no, we don't have any. I know. Yeah. I, 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 I'm Christmas with cake. you. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Because, because well, I, get me the cake. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> give me the cake. Yeah. Give me the brandy. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, I'm with you. I think brandy, it's time. It's time. Let's bring Sign. brandy back. Okay. You know, it's kind yeah. of like. So. Radiothon prize, Michael. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Sit there and down a bottle of brandy with me. That'd be fun. Um, but, uh, yeah. So they do it like you know, Bass and Flinders do. They do they, they do masterclasses. They do things where you can go and you can um, sort of basically sort of distill your own rum, uh, distill your own gin, and that sort of stuff. And they they do, but they also do at Bass and Flinders. They also do some other really interesting liqueurs like limoncello, and they do like an orange based one, and that's an, an eau de vie, those sort of things. So, and you know, while we're on the booze there's sort of like you know there's also um jetty road um, brewery down there which is uh doing some interesting stuff they've also it's become a sort of bit of a destination for locals to go and eat with their kids and that sort of stuff so it's a big sort of raucous sort of place with pretty decent food you know it's sort of like you're not gonna it's nothing's gonna blow your skirt up but it's it's pretty you know it's it's it, it, what it says on the label long wooden tables and... yeah exactly exactly and kind of fun and sort of like you know feels a bit beachy and you know Chippies. all that sort of stuff yeah exactly exactly you know that sort of stuff, and then there's um, two boy, two bays, I should say, two bays brewing company, which is uh, down there as well, which is a gluten free brewery. Mm. So you know, good, and they do it. They have a they have a really good range of beers there, and they have like again, they've they've got a place where you can go and have a bite to eat, and so they're they're doing gluten free pizzas and you know that sort of stuff there. So it's kind of fairly specialty as well, but the the beer is actually pretty good. Um, can, can I uh, pause just to ask how – I know it's called Habitat now. How organic is something like this? Does it just spring up? And the idea of these really impressive uh, distilleries and establishments appearing in industrial estates, yeah, is that – Yeah, I think um, Bass and Flinders sort of, I think, were the first ones to move in and I think that gave people the idea because the real estate on the morning distillery is so expensive and, you know, a lot of these places need a fair bit of room, you know, with a, if you're, they're sort of like making, you know, gin at, at volume and that sort of stuff, you need a bit of room around you. Mm. Um, and so I think it's sort of like it was an idea that caught on and it's now been, they've now sort of banded together and I sort of promote because there's enough people down there doing things to so they're banded together to call it Dramana Habitat. Yeah, and it's um, a critical mass now. Yeah, and it's kind of it's really interesting because it's sort of like the mix is great and it does have a real artisan quality. People, it's like you know, there's there's um, little rebel the uh, coffee roastery down there, which is 
I have to say, quite fantastic. Like, if you're in that neighbourhood and you're after a really good coffee, find this place because it's, like, it's easy to get to and it's sort of like they roast their own beans there. You can have a coffee there. They also have a coffee subscription service that's that's pretty good as well. So, um, you know, so there's the people doing that sort of stuff there. There's, there's a cheese maker down there called Boatshed Cheese that are doing... They get milk from the Mornington Peninsula but also from elsewhere, It's but it's all within Victoria, so Buffalo... Um, cow and sheep milk and do a whole bunch of different sort of soft French style washed rind cheeses but they also they're also a cheese merchant so if you want French cheese they have a pretty good selection of imported cheese and cheese from elsewhere in Australia as well so you know it's it's amazing so but then you kind of like after you've done that you can get off the estate and there's other places as well like like there's um, Torello Farms Farmgate and um, it is like a fantastic farm gate. And Torello Farms have got, they do um, animals as well as vegetables. And so they've got all of that sort of stuff there. But they also um, take in stuff, produce from all little farms all over the Mornington Peninsula. So you never quite know what you're going to get. But the, I was when I was there, there was like six to eight different varieties of potatoes that you could get there, sort of like, you know, and they're, and they're really helpful staff. They know what the potatoes are for, that sort of stuff. But really good fruit and, you know, they're sort of great avocados and sort of, you know, you can, you know, certain times of year there'll be strawberries and there'll be cherries and that sort of stuff. And then, But you can also get the meat there as well, so lamb and beef. Um, so it's kind of like, and a lot of handmade goods and then things like olive oil. Um, as well so it was another one like I kind of was kicking my little heels in the air when I discovered that because I've you know I've been going down there well like a lot of people going down there for a while and didn't realize this was there it is yeah it's special isn't it and then of course if you want to catch a movie there's the drive-in I love the drive-in yeah I love the drive-in I'm saving Barbie (laughs) (laughs) oh you've really wet the appetite Uh, and the what did what is a Dramana local called? A Dramanian? A Dramanian, uh, yeah. What do you think they make of people uh, coming um, in? I think they're sort of like, you know, they're kind of like, I think Dramana people are kind of like, there's there's something really nice about Dramana, whereas a lot of the Mornington Peninsula is becoming extremely gentrified. Mm. Dramana still feels like a sort of scrappy Aussie beach town. And I think that's part of the charm is it still has that sort of, it feels like a really lived in town. People live there and shop there and everything. And you kind of think, well, these people are, are like, you know, they, they like their food, obviously, because, you know, something like the IGA would not be able to survive in a place. Like, of course, you can get all your usual stuff there. But they're, but they're also, obviously, there's an interest among the locals as well as, you know, the tourists coming down to the Mornington Peninsula. So it's great um, with those. And uh, I'd be remiss of me, there's a bakery in Dramana that's name I can't remember, though it's probably good because it gets hassled, but they were very supportive during lockdown. And uh, This would be Miller's? It is, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're really good. And um, I can highly... Highly recommend their. Um, they do a very good chocolate brownie, oh. and um, and they their pies are excellent as well. Like the other day, I was down there and it was um, they were doing an osso pie, Ooh. which was uh, which was absolutely delicious. And they've they've, they've got another one that they're quite famous for, which is the duck and pinot. Okay, so right. Right. settle down. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Michael Harden, uh, mouth watering as always. Thank you. You're welcome. Triple R. Diving headfirst into Mia Fears Breakfast's beloved cinephile, Simone Baldy. Morning, Simone. Hello, it is I. Good morning. <laughs> I guess it is you. Uh, dank. It's not a word that I've heard 
in a while. Really? Mm. I mean, I've heard of Dank Memes, I suppose. Dank memes. Hello Dankness, the name of the film I'm going to talk about today, is so named, um, say, the directors, collectively known as Soda Jerk, because they like the... The, the movement of the word, the etymology of the word or the, its applications in that it referred to a kind of moistness and then referred to a kind of weed and now refers to, what's the word that they use? Like janky dark corners of the internet. Nice. Are you dank? <laughs> can a person be dank? I think a person can be dank. I'm not. <laughs> I believe the word basic is what you would, would use to refer to me. Is it an insult? No. I think I think in the dark corners of the internet, a dank meme is a very good thing. It, in this in this particular moment, captures that darkly funny, uneasy, psychically profoundly disturbed, mm. ick amazingness of culture. Yeah. That's what the word dank embodies. And that is what the film Hello Dankness embodies also. Um, are you guys familiar with Soda Jerk? Yeah, they did Terranalius. They did Terranalius. Yeah. And um, that was fun. probably the, what they're most famous for prior to that. So basically they're, uh, they are siblings, um, Australian, based in New York, who in the early noughties started making sample-based art films uh, as a rebellious disruptive anti anti copyright um, creative act uh, their films are entirely constructed from samples of other films stitched together with like surgical precision um, where characters from all these familiar texts that you know are embedded in worlds of other characters but they're all used to create a new film narrative a new film story that because of how cleverly they integrate all of this footage, including things like... Oh, I'll come back to that. Because of how cleverly they integrate the footage, uh, seems like a really coherent new film. Wow, that sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> it's like a crazy <laughs> amount of work and, and there's a lot to take away. So I'm talking about a film that actually I'm going to be... I'm going to be real with you guys straight up. Unless it gets voted in on the audience awards, you cannot watch it again at MIFF, right? It will not be able to be screened commercially because uh, it is entirely made from pirated bits of other films. Mm. Um, however, I did check with the filmmakers and they're currently talking to Acme and there are very strong hopes for a season in the medium-term future. So I, I, I did check. There will be another chance to see Hello Dankness and people should absolutely go and see it. But I wanted to talk about it because, like, to my mind, these are the most interesting filmmakers coming out of Australia at the moment. Um, they have been for a very long time. They work in a way that is um, entirely original, technically, like, bravura technicality made in their, like, Brooklyn basement flat. Um, and it's just worth talking about. Like, it's just worth drawing attention to these wondrous, crazy, incredibly funny filmmakers and their wondrous, crazy, incredibly funny film. So, anyway, uh, just for a bit more backstory about these guys. So, they started making art films in 2002, um, made The Was with the Avalanches, a kind of 16-minute film when Wildflower came out around about 2016, and then were funded by the Ian Potter Foundation to make <laughs> a 55-minute film that examined the myth of Terranullius in Australia and Australian toxic masculinity and detention by, uh, again, kind of pastiching all these Australian films. And it was very darkly funny and was completely disavowed by the Ian Potter Foundation when it came out Brilliant. as being un-Australian. <laughs> that was shown in Acme, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it was. 
Acme stood by it. So these are people, I tell you this story just to tell you that these are people who are genuinely working on the cutting edge. They're genuinely ruffling feathers. Um, but they're also incredibly devoted to their craft. Like they're just not in it to make a blockbuster or win an Academy Award. They're in it to make, you know, films that are, that they're, proud of and that intersect with the culture in a really interesting way. This is more of a post Q and, the Q&A post-screening question, but is there, has their method changed with the technology? Are they, it sounds pretty complex to put together. Not from what they were saying at the Q&A, at the screening. They use rotoscoping to... Look, I can't remember the detail of Terra Nullius that well and it's not something you can go back and rewatch. but I think maybe they've gotten better... No, no, it's pretty much the same. Okay. It's the same kind of pastiche. I think probably since the early noughties it's improved. It's definitely like operatic in scale at this point. Um, and does this one use deep fakes as opposed to just raw, like just existing footage? I don't think so. Mm, okay. I don't think so. I don't recall seeing anything, but it may well have done. Anyway, shall I tell you what it's about? Mm. So it's about, it's about the rise of Trump. It's about COVID and the collapse of civic discourse and civil society in America and the fracturing of our kind of collective psyche into um, (laughs) governs and coves and alliances and groups which made all the world feel kind of janky and dank. Mm. So it is a film that using clips from, I mean, there's like, 300 films that are sampled in the film, but uh, the ones that I, off the top of my head, remember are The Burbs featuring Tom Hanks. Uh, this is The End, that James Franco mm. uh, apocalypse movie. Uh, Pen 15 is in there, Shameless is in there, American Beauty, and Annette Benning is a character that features Wayne and Garth are there. Um, yeah, what a fun mix. Hundreds. <laughs> Annie, the musical, Phantom of the Opera, and Cats all make appearances at different points. Uh, yeah, so that's like five of 300 um, recognisable pieces of cultural effluvia that um, can make you I – mean, films literally taken from, I think, they start in the 60s, 70s, 80s, massive chunk from the 80s that the uh, filmmaker said at the Q&A the other night. Reagan, Bad Presidents make for really great films. Um, huge chunk from, I mean, really everything up until the present day. And they use audio samples, including documentary samples, um, overlaying them with the film or like embedding them in the characters' mouths in really clever ways to tell the story of like this suburban community where things kind of start to change. You've got your Bernie fans and you've got your Hillary fans and you have your Trump fans and they've all got their flags up and they're in their corners. Uh, and then the world just kind of slowly collapses and goes super crazy and it takes you through corona hitting and in a, in what was... Like, the, the films are funny, right? It's a funny film. It's a satire. There is one sequence around COVID where they're basically representing lockdown with a whole series of characters that are just, like, lolling about in bed or, like, smashing ice cream into their faces from, like, home alone in front of the TV or, like, drinking alcohol in their pantry and it was it was so triggering that I started crying it was incredibly and this what's so amazing about this movie is that they get it right this film so perfectly depicts what it feels like to live now 
or to have lived through those moments. There's also another brilliant moment which hopefully people forget about by the time they see where they talk about uh, the Black Lives Matter, they don't talk about, they represent the Black Lives Matter movement using Robocop and (laughs) for a significant part of it. There's a scene when Annette Bening from American Beauty pulls the blinds closed on a house that she's trying to sell and then starts weeping and, like, smacking herself in the face and saying, you're a baby, get over it. And that scene so perfectly captures the kind of emotional overwhelm of white people trying to reckon with the Black Lives Matter movement but just absolutely having to switch off their social media because it was all too Mm. heinous. And it's perfect. Ruined a really good. Just forget about it. No, you haven't ruined it. You've presaged it. They're so. It's just. It's really visionary, and they're so incisive in the way that they see the world, but so funny in the way that they represent it. Um, And you know, it's amazing to hear them talk about their work, or or to read about them talking about their work, because they have an incredibly political and academic approach. Like it's incredibly considered. Um, But again, they're making something that's like fun because it's tapping into all that pop culture and nostalgia and it's also just naturally they are they're very funny people um yeah so wow i imagine so many people would go along just trying to pick every reference yeah Mm. they do very they do very handily give you at the end just a rolling scroll of everything that they've because there's no credits Mm. they're not going to be crediting other than themselves you know but you do get a full rolling scroll of every visual and audio sample that's in the film which is really fun to kind of sit and and pick through does soda jerk work in advertising or something how do you make a living from unscreenable films do you know (laughs) it's such a mystery and i was somewhat frustrated by the direction that the Q&A went in the other night because I'm like, just ask them how they do it yeah. and why. Um, they, I don't know, they they get commissions, they work, they operate in the art world and their films screen in uh, art museums um, and they were funded by the, the Gallery of South Australia and another art foundation to make this film. So, And they have said, you know, we're not, we're just trying to get by. So I don't know if they have second jobs. They don't look like they do. They look like women who are like... Have for people who have for twenty years been entirely immersed in the world of art making. Amazing. You know what I mean. You know those people. You're like you just you've just been an artist for a real long time, haven't you? <laughs> They're just very cool looking. Um, so I, I I'm not sure, but I know you know it's clear that they are not making millions from what they do, but it's sustainable. Like their profile is high enough, and this film has screened at film festivals all over the world. I'd be curious if any of the, like, films, the directors, the writers, the actors have, like, commented on it as well of, like... The films that are sampled? Yeah. That is a great question now. Yeah, I have I no idea. They're up, definitely, yeah. like, quite high profile at this point. Like, mm. the film debuted at Berlinale and, and had multiple screenings there, big write-up in The Hollywood Reporter. Like, they've, they're a very um, or a relatively high-profile cultural export from this country, but I don't know. I don't know if they, and I don't know if they've ever the, been sued. I, you know, there's comedies in there from the timing of an edit, isn't there? Yeah, the timing of an, of an edit. The, I mean, I can't even. I cannot wrap my brain around it. Characters from two different films getting the perfect eye line mm. from shot to shot, mm. so that it's clear in the narrative of the, the Soda Jerk film that they're all looking at something in the middle distance and they're all looking at the same thing. And so they do that in a way that is like visually consistent but is also consistently funny and then then randomly poignant 
but also funny. Ugh, what a privilege to have seen it. It's, yeah. I feel very, very privileged to have seen it and um, I will it... go and see it again when it comes back to Acme. Four years of labour in a dark basement for these phenomenal artists, so it deserves to be seen as much as possible. But, you know, we live in a world where copyright is what it is. The art of sampling and remix culture is still um, really impeded by copyright law as it stands. And no more screenings at MIF? No, not no. currently. Friday fourth, Tuesday eighth, and then you had you attended the Q and A, I suppose. I did. I'd love to see it as a repeat screening. You know how they get repeat mm. screenings up on the last weekend. It's totally worthy. But I, uh, my understanding is that the Acme conversations are advanced, and it will be. <laughs> Acme's not going to love me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Talking about this, but my understanding is the end of this year, beginning of next year. All right. Hello, dankness. How brain fizzing. The directors are soda jerk. Simone Baldi. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Ah, that's right. Triple R. Our Friday funny bugger is in, and it's hello to comedian and adventurer Prue Blake. Morning, hello, Prue. everyone. Welcome back, Mom. Thank you. Wonderful times. Yeah. Um, I had a dream trip in. <gasps> Not as good as some other people, all the hot air balloons were mm. out. I'd um, love it if you used it as a form of commuting. <laughs> well, that's what I was thinking. If they could land a little bit on a dime, <laughs> it would be a great commute. Mel- I've said it before and I'll say it again. Melbourne has an east-west connection problem. We do. And people will not catch the bus. So <laughs> why not hot air balloon the bus of the sky? <laughs> that does Because, of course, yeah, that contract was cancelled for a billion dollars. Uh, for the East West Link, <laughs> I was and like, "For what?" Yeah, for yeah no, but you're exactly Donald? right. If we did, <laughs> if we have a balloon-led transport economy, I think we had the zip line. I never went on the zip line across the Yarra. Across Yarra, the Yarra yeah. <gasps> but um, that did look like a fun way to commute. And balloons are quite environmentally friendly. Can I ask when is a zip line a flying fox? Yeah. Uh, oh, so are they identical? Are they interchangeable? Flying fox sm- is flying fox smaller? I think flying a fox is in a line is once you're like mm. strapped in. Right. You've got the harness on. Ah, uh, yeah. Flying yeah. fox, you're just holding on. Yeah. yeah. Harness zip line. Mm. Yeah, I think. Yeah. We are making I mean, this up. text in if you know. If, <laughs> if you run a local zip line business. And I feel like zip lines are in like the treetops. Flying fox, maybe a bit Ooh, lower. But ah. fox, flying fox says trees to me. Okay, well, here we I go. mean, is that not where they hang? Yeah. Foxes. Trees. I mean, like, that's flying, flying foxes look at flying foxes and just think absolute amateurs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, this is embarrassing. Yeah. You need to be at least 50 metres above <laughs> yeah. sea level. Come on. <laughs> we don't look like that. Ew, you look so ungraceful. <laughs> But it's quite serene, isn't it, in the seeing them all float above? It's gorgeous. Balloons. For, I mean, little floating death traps, mm. I think, stunning. Are you scared of them? Would you? Yeah, I'm scared of them for I, sure. The death traps, the, that was a bit yeah, of a Yeah, you said you've, we, I couldn't help raising it off air because they were impressive. You mm. said you've been in one. I have, yeah, and it was a gift um, from. My boyfriend at the time, now my husband. <laughs> it makes sound like we were, we were broken up. And I was like, wow, what an amazing gift. Would, you know, you, it's very rare that you would ever buy yourself that. Like, mm. And it, it was, and I thought, that, that's nice. Never would have thought to do it. It was one of the best things ever. Oh, and wow. Melbourne, I think, is the only city in the world you can do it because our airport is so far from the CBD. Oh, really? Uh, so you can't do it in Sydney because it's a flight risk. 
you know, not a flight, not, you know, it's a risk that you'll crash into a plane in Melbourne because the airport's so far away. It's the only urban centre you can do it. And anyway, I highly recommend it. And Mon's okay. family businesses in hot air balloons and, as well. And <laughs> the severe uh, balloon company will benefit. So this was a casual hot air balloon ride, not a proposal? No, I did think at the time, I was uh, like, oh, God. I... But then you get into the you get into the basket and there's, <laughs> it is, it's just, and there's 10 other people there. And I was like, oh, thank God this isn't a proposal. That would, be, that would really kill the mood. I mean, and also it's particularly because in our basket there was a young couple, they would have been maybe 21, who had been out all night and then jumped on the balloon. <laughs> and I was just so anxious the whole time. That, wow. And then they had a, then the, the, the euphoria of the night before started changing mood on the bus ride back. <laughs> After the balloon, and they had a big fight, and the bus had to pull over and drop one of them off. So I'm Whoa, glad that was... they let one Yikes. walk home. Yeah. How the mighty have fallen from a hot air Quite. balloon to a bus. Yeah, so it's a lot of metaphor in yeah. there. Do you ever yeah. feel being up there that in a wi- in a wicker basket that you feel like a a little giant shopping? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Picnic that would be farmers market shopping. Yeah, you know, it's just a strawberry of That's the sky. Not just a regular, <laughs> regular weekly shop. No. So, um, in conclusion, wonderful experience. Bad. Well, for me, I'm glad I wasn't proposed to. Well, yeah, I had a friend that got proposed to, and they didn't realise other people were going to be there. And oh. when they were waiting up to get into the basket, they overheard a woman in front of them say, really sarkily, like. Ugh, but that's a proposal. <gasps> and, and so once they did it, they wouldn't tell the rest of the group because they didn't want to give them the satisfaction. So they just had to, like, keep it to themselves and not celebrate or kiss or anything. So did they? how did they do it? Did they do it in midair with everyone around? Oh, yeah, I guess it was just a little whisper between them in the air. Oh, a, whis- <laughs> a whisper proposal. Because I'm thinking, like, how big is this wicker basket? I'm like, is it, like, the size of a patio? Like, that they can do it in a corner where no one else knows? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm- I think they would have been pretty much shoulder to shoulder with everyone. Yeah, it's 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 intimate. You've yeah. got to be adaptable with a proposal, don't you? Oh, that's why I'm yeah. asking. Because you I bail. Feel, You're yeah. allowed to bail. Bail on it. Wait till you land a Marabin in, <laughs> in a field like I did. And wait, wait till <laughs> the bus. Yeah. They wait won't be expecting crash into it. some power lines. Yeah. And, and my, my partner. Um, he kind of said, like, oh, yeah, I think, you know, maybe I would want to marry you. He's never been interested in marriage. Oh. And I was like, yeah, but that doesn't count. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. Yeah. Ask me better than that. Is there a balloon outside? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm not doing it with my feet on the ground, I can tell you that. <laughs> I need to be in a basket <laughs> of some sort. Uh, is, what else is exercising your brain these days, Okay, Brooke? this is the other thing that I would love some feedback on. Um I'm really obsessed with the game Whack-A-Mole mm-hmm. um, and, you know, how it kind of represents the futility of all human endeavour. But I also just don't – I've never seen one in the flesh oh. and I really – I want to have a go and I want to know where it is. I asked someone the other day at a gig and they're like, yeah, I've played it. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah. Okay. What a flex. <laughs> they go, you have to go to a vintage arcade and it has to be overseas. <gasps> So I just feel like if it's not in a time zone, is it even a real game? Mm. What is – I'm really sorry, but I don't know what it is. You don't know Whack-A-Mole? No. I I feel like they put it in movies a lot as a bit of a metaphor for like this guy's future – You fix one problem and another one pops up. It's a box and it's got maybe – I mean, depending on the size of the game, nine to 12 holes in it Mm. and little moles come up and you hit them with a hammer. Yes, okay, I have. I've seen that in films. Okay, It's in the title, (laughs) Whack-A-Mole. Whack-A-Mole. Okay. 
And and I just think it, it's such a beautiful metaphor for bureaucracy. It is. Like, <laughs> like I used to work for councils as a placemaker, which is someone that tries to make cities more inviting and better to visit. And we had our own version of whack-a-mole, which was whack-a-mural on it. <laughs> <laughs> just any area that wasn't getting enough attention, you're like, whack-a-mural on that. <laughs> Have you thought about some paint, some street art? <laughs> Potholes, no, it's just got a mural uh, on the road, it just got murals yeah, around it. Yeah, next time you see those, you're like, oh, that's Prublake's work. <laughs> Public toilets yeah, coloured in, little, covered in murals. Stick figures. <laughs> Apparently there's a whack-a-mole at time zone, Surface Paradise. Surface Paradise? Yeah. Okay. I'll have to go. Yeah. It's interesting because there are pinball machine repair people and, uh, you know, arcade kind of repair. It's a job you can do. You can walk. But whack-a-mole is such a – I mean, you literally have to beat the machine, don't you? Like you yeah. have to whack it. Mm. Oh, so you reckon all the machines have died out from their I think, required abuse? Yeah. I, I mean, it might be planned obsolescence. But, yeah, yeah I <laughs> – there is something inherently destructive and, you know, it corrodes the machine, the mere act of playing it. I reckon it probably corrodes the human brain as well because yeah. it can't be that satisfying <laughs> if the, the moles are always going down at the same time as you hit them because they're changing location. Oh, I see. So you're never going to get a satisfying, like, fuck. It's not like when you hit those, they are the, we were, you know, those that carnival game where you drew a big hammer and tried to get the weight up to the top. So. Oh, that's embarrassing, that yeah. game. Yeah, I, I don't know. You that. arguably could if you preempted the hole that the mole would emerge from and mm. you could whack it on the way up. Yeah. It's one of those things where statistically do you do better if you always whack the same hole mm. no matter what? That's right, like a multiple choice yeah, in a test. Yeah, yeah. Is that the way to play it? Yeah. Because you actually can't even win whack-a-mole. You can you only can't. time out. Ah. It sounds like a terrible game. Yeah, that's why just, I love it. It's just a good metaphor. It's a bad game. Yeah, I love any sort of game that reflects the mundanity of work. Like that <laughs> is exactly the type of game I want to play. Oh, well, it looks play- like the only, the only bite we're getting is Surface Paradise. Surf- yeah. I mean, I am willing to go. Also, if they're invented in a time... You know how AFL players are better now than they ever have been? I wonder whether the reflexes, whether our human reflexes are just so superior to whack-a-mole technology. Mm. Really, we would need, like, limitless number of moles. Yeah, possibly, (laughs) although you need to be able to reach them. But how fast did the mole come up and then how fast did it uh, retract? Because it seems easy. Mm. (laughs) Maybe you could simulate your own. Like, you could get a bit of cardboard, you could cut some holes, and then your partner or something could get little toys on sticks. Oh, yeah. And he could control and you could bang. Or I was going to, you know, after this, you could all crouch down in the (laughs) courtyard, bob up, and I'll pat you on the head. (laughs) A little bop. (laughs) There is an idea that it used to be called Moana Hall, and it was played at the Fun Factory on the corner of Turak and Chapel Street. (gasps) It was called what? Moana Hall. Moana Hall. According to a listener, yes. I love that. Or is Man, that those were the I days. loved the Jam Factory, that time zone there or whatever it was called. Oh, that was good. Oh, yeah, fun Factory. I mean, look. Fun Factory. Yeah, because uh, uh, at the end of the day, it is a visceral recreation of animal torture. <laughs> yeah, maybe mm. RSPCA shut it down. <laughs> yeah, I think they should. <laughs> um, where can we join, enjoy more of you? Oh, 
please follow me on Instagram at Prue Blake Comedy. Uh, say hi to me on the street and um, <laughs> read my newsletter. I shave my legs for this on Substack. All right, catch you soon. Thanks, Prue. Thanks. Triple R. Thanks for listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters, the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or via the Triple R website.